is the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Yes, g'day. Jessica Hayes with you again today. Fantastic to have your company this afternoon. Uh, if you tune into the cricket, I'll be with you for the next hour before taking you back to the third test between Australia and South Africa at the SCG. So I will be with you for the next hour, right across regional WA. And today you'll be catching up with a leading sheep meat exporter who reckons Australia's new free trade agreement with India is a great first step in growing the market, but reckons there's still a long way to go. We see sheep meats as important parts for them, but it's going to take time to grow the market. More from Roger Fletcher, who is the director of Fletcher International, very soon. And a bit later, you're headed to the Gascoigne, where one community is mourning the loss of one of its most beloved icons, which is a sheep. And you'll hear why there's already talk about honouring his memory. It's hard to explain, but one single sheep can make such a difference or can bring so much joy to so many people. It's incredible. And, yeah, it would be nice to see something for him. More on that before the news at one. And if you tuned in from the header, maybe the boat or perhaps the vineyard this afternoon, you can join the conversation by sending me a text this afternoon. The number is 0448 922 604. That number again is 0448 922 604. And just remember to pop your name on that text and let me know where you're from. First up today, emergency flood warnings remain in place across the Kimberley this afternoon with unprecedented rainfall causing significant damage and destruction across the region. Slow-moving system ex-tropical cyclone Ellie is continuing to dump huge falls across the Kimberley, resulting in a -a once-in-a-century flood disaster. Pastoralists are among those already counting the costs. Livestock and infrastructure have been lost and there are also reports homesteads have been inundated with water. Jack Andrews is the chair of the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association and he says it's still too early to know exactly how much damage has been done, but he expects it'll be a tough few days. There's certainly going to be some damage moving forward. It's just really difficult now at this point in time with this weather system sitting on the top of us to anybody to get airborne and really assess what's occurred. There are properties that have got water inundation, flooding that has occurred without going into specifics, but certainly aware of the video of cattle being washed down the river, which is distressing. Certainly no pastoralist wants to see animals being washed down a river and, and certainly a lot of the people that run properties up here have been in this area for a long time and they do a lot of early preparation work before the wet season to ensure their cattle are in safe areas, try and mitigate against these circumstances. But obviously this is an unprecedented weather event, record river levels, record flooding, heights that haven't been seen before. So very difficult to plan for in a period of the year, I guess, where there are low staff numbers, minimal staff on ground due to people taking holidays because it's normally a great time to get away once you've got surface water. So there's certainly some challenges on that. I'll assure you that every pastoralist in the area will be doing their level best to get airborne and and get proactive as soon as they can to back up the the work they would have done before the wet season and and get around their stock and see what what needs to be done. Mm. Do you have any idea of the sort of scale of losses that we might be looking at? I wouldn't like to take a guess, really. We obviously know there's going to be losses, whether it's in the tens or whether it's in the thousands, is, is too hard to tell at this point of view just because no one's got any visual or eyesight across properties at this point in time. We're just unable to basically get around it until this low or this tropical storm moves past and then people have got to gauge where they're at after that. So there's been challenges getting in the air uh, with the weather still kind of hovering in the area, is that right? Correct. It's really difficult flying conditions, obviously heavy rain, downpours. 
strong winds. So it's making it nigh impossible to get in the air and be able to assess what's what's going on. Mm. How's everyone coping with that? It must be pretty tough not knowing what, what you're dealing with and not being able to do too much. Yeah, it's stressful. Um, that's how I would summarise it. It's distressful and it's distressing thinking about what might be occurring that you can't get around. Pastoralists are, are in this industry because they, they love what they do. They love livestock. They love working on the land and they love being part of it. So to not be out there and be able to be proactive at this moment in time is, is like I said, frustrating and, and stressful. But I can assure you once they can get out there, they'll do whatever they can and whatever is required to, to get around their properties. You're at Yeda Station there now and you've got a fair bit of rain hovering over you at the moment. When are you expecting this system to pass through and when are you thinking people might be able to get a better idea of what they're dealing with? Well, we'd be looking to possibly get airborne sometime around Thursday. I believe this looks like it'll go through past Jeter anyway on its way to Broome uh, over the next 24 hours and then we'll look to assess where we're at from that. Where Fortunate Eater in one regard is that main water coming from the Fitzroy Crossing is probably three to four days away. So we'll, we're slightly more fortunate than others that we should be able to get airborne before that main water comes down. It's obviously, as you mentioned, unprecedented rainfall. Do you think there was enough warning uh, or did pastoralists feel prepared enough for this event? Like I touched on before, pastoralists, a lot of pastoralists have been in this area for a long time. They know their properties, they know where safe areas to have their stock over the wet season so all that planning would have gone into place certainly i think we were aware that this storm was coming that it was going to be record heights uh, i guess that's always hard to to estimate that's for their records and unprecedented as it is so i think pastors would have done what they can do we live in an environment that mother nature sometimes pushes back and we we have to just work around that so yeah, no, I believe we've, we've had the warning and, and people have done what they can and they will continue to do so. Mm. What's next for pastoralists in the region? What will they be uh, looking to do in the next few days? The next few days will be around about livestock welfare. Obviously, the first point of call is making sure that all the staff on the properties are safe and accounted for and have food and supplies. And once that box has been ticked, it will most definitely turn to livestock and just ensuring that what livestock are on properties are are in a comfortable situation as possible and, and keeping an eye on those and, and people will continue to do that until that they're confident that the cattle and horses and whatever other animals are around are, are safe and secure. Is there anything anyone outside of the region can do to help? Is there any message you want to get out there? Probably just an awareness aspect of the current situations. Obviously, there's going to be highways are closed, but on the other side of that, we're not going to have a lot of infrastructure around us to control livestock movements. Fences will be down, floodgates will be down, and highways are quite often the highest the highest area. They're built on the highest area for a reason. So to motorists out there, if you see cattle in distress, feel free to ring someone, but also just be really aware wherever these floods have come through that there's a high chance livestock will be either close to or on the, on the highway frontage, standing on it to a degree. So I certainly want to let everyone be aware of that and, and look out for it. What's next for the KPCA? Will you be touching base with your members in the next few days and is there any message you wanted to send to them? Yes, certainly. Our KPCA team has already started contacting members just to get a gauge on, on where everybody's at. The full extent of the damage is unknown at this point in time, but certainly feel for anybody that's had water inundation or floodwaters go through their housing. 
nobody wants to have their worldly possessions go underwater. So we certainly feel for them. And pastoralists being pastoralists, we will get behind each other and we'll support those that need the support and we'll work our way through this process and come out the other side. Chair of the Kimberley Pilbrook Cattlemen's Association, Jack Andrews, speaking with Steph Sinclair about the devastating floods that are sweeping through parts of the Kimberley. Now, road and infrastructure damage from that flooding situation in the Kimberley has raised concerns about potential supply chain disruptions across the north. With the Fitzroy River Bridge significantly damaged, the main transport route between Perth and parts of the Kimberley could be cut off for weeks. Western Roads Federation Chief Executive Cam Dumsney says transporters are already looking at alternative arrangements to ensure supplies can get to the region. So look, obviously we have seasonal impacts where you know, obviously we've had flooding events through the Kimberley before, but in the event it is a sustained impact, let's say the bridge, you know, it hasn't been assessed, but worst case, there is damage, then we've already started work as an industry about how we resupply the East Kimberley. So the retailers, you know, the IGAs, Coles and Woolworths are usually pretty quick on redirecting their supply chains, either supply out of potentially Adelaide or Darwin, and they'll adjust accordingly. In terms of the other supplies, the industry were already working on alternative routes. There's some access issues we need to address, but to be able to supply from Perth via probably be Port Augusta, Catherine, and then into the East Kimberley that way. So we've already started some preparatory planning on that and things that we need to do. How long do those plans take to, to come into action? When can we expect that to sort of be up and running if it is sustained damage that we do see at Fitzroy? Look, it's fairly quickly. Unfortunately, we're getting pretty good at it. You know, we've had the rail washed out, uh, major rail disruption earlier, east-west, and so we've had to accommodate, you know, changed access there across on the east-west route. We've had impacts like this before, but obviously not sustained. The government in WA and we've also got to deal with the NT who have been incredibly supportive. And getting those plans in place can be pretty quick. Okay. What is the longest that you've ever seen that road out of action between Fitzroy and Halls Creek? I've been in the job, what, eight, nine years, eight something years now. I don't think I've ever seen it out for more than a week. But we've obviously got damage now to the Victoria Highway through Timber Creek as well. We've got damage on the Stewart Highway. We've got damage on the Barclay, or certainly there was flood impacts on the Barclay Highway from Camel Wheel through the three ways, which connects Queensland into the NT and across. So one of the things we've argued, and we've been at it now for two or three years, is we've got to do something about making our supply chains more climate resilient. It's not acceptable that the Kimberley should be disrupted every time we have a wet season. It's not acceptable that our east-west route is disrupted. We've had three disruptions of more than two weeks uh, in the last three years. We've got to do something to make our supply chains more resilient. Mm, how do we do that? What what tools do we have at our disposal to make that more resilient? Well, there's a couple of things. Obviously, apart from the physical things of you know improving the road infrastructure and you know on the east west improving the rail as well, it's also things like building up buffer stocks within the East Kimberley areas and other areas, so that there's you know buffer stocks, warehouse stocks, whatever you want to call it gives us time, builds us that buffer that we can then adapt to any changes or impacts. We've got so used to just-in-time supply chain systems, we've got to change that and start to rebuild those buffer stocks in our local areas. How much pressure does that put on transporters who are already dealing with, you know, labour shortages uh, and other pressures? (laughs) Exactly. How how do you cope with that? How How do you manage that? Uh, look, the industry's under stress. It's been under stress 
pre-COVID and through COVID it continued. As you said, we've got a critical shortage of drivers. We've got a shortage of operations staff as well. I've got managing directors of companies that are driving trucks and working on warehouse floors, packing boxes, because you can't get staff. When you had an extra, you know, probably two or three days into the delivery cycle to move stuff around to the East Kimberley, that's going to put more pressure on the system. Western Roads Federation Chief Executive Cam Dumsney speaking with Steph Sinclair about some of the challenges ahead for transporters with the Fitzroy River Bridge potentially out of action for some time yet. Now, while the floodwaters are still a major threat and the emergency is still very real, attention is now turning to what the recovery effort should look like. Tony Seabrook is the head of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association and he says the government needs as many boots on the ground as soon as possible. This should be a number one priority for the state government to get main roads, engineers, everybody up there as quickly as they possibly can once the waters recede to work out what they're going to need to do to get the infrastructure uh, back in place in a way that will actually get get food in and and especially as the dry season begins to approach um, a capacity to move cattle out. Right. You you heard from Cam Dumsney from the Western Roads Federation earlier who said that this highlights the need for improved road infrastructure. Do you think that this disaster should be the catalyst for a a more serious conversation about Kimberley freight routes? There's no shadow of doubt about that whatsoever. And it will highlight the importance of the bridges that are there and the fact that no matter how good your road is, if the bridges aren't there or able to sustain a flood, then they're not adequate. You've been on the phone to WA Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis. What are you wanting from government right now? I think getting people up there. As soon as the floodwaters subside, as soon as the rain slows down, just get people on the ground to make the decisions that need to be made very, very quickly so that the the equipment that will be required can be moved up there as quickly as possible to try and get the repair work done. Uh, This is a crucial thing. The, The Kimberley is not a network of roads. There's just a few key roads that run through there and the road to Fitzroy on to Halls Creek, absolutely crucial. And uh, I just shudder to think of what they're going to do in a very wet season to try and get those bridges open. But the, the films and photographs I've seen of the, the bridges up there, there's significant damage. That, that It's not just a matter of filling you know, the lead-ups to the, to the bridges. I think there's been damage to the bridges themselves. So engineers uh, and the equipment to do whatever it takes to get the, you know, the road system open and running again. I mean, what about support for pastoralists? Yes, early days, yet very early days. You know, lucky people will not be flooded. Uh, I believe there are some stations that are going to be evacuated uh, on the basis that the floodwaters could inundate. Um, look, really early days. It's a matter of, of working out what, what's required. But in the same way that the droughts are regarded as a natural disaster, this is a natural disaster. And the, there are certain avenues uh, for people that need help in a whole range of different issues or ways. And this is not about massive financial support. This is just about the, the support for human people. And, you know, there'll be traumatised people up there and uh, it would be very helpful uh, if, if government could become involved in doing, you know, whatever they can to alleviate that situation. Tony Seabrook, who is the president of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association, and our thoughts are very much with those people dealing with the damage to their properties and, of course, 
those who have lost livestock. Uh, just a reminder that there is still a severe weather warning in place for intense rainfall and damaging winds for people in parts of the Kimberley and North Interior districts. And that heavy rainfall may lead to flash flooding. Uh, and that's likely west of Derby during today and early Thursday. So just to repeat again, uh, and a major flood warning is current for the Fitzroy River as well and a flood warning for the West Kimberley District. And I'll have all the details about what's causing that system, where it's moving and um, what you can expect from the skies over the next few days when I catch up with the Bureau at half past the hour. It's 21 past 12 on the Country Hour and just quickly, nominations have closed for the 2023 CBH member director elections. Nominations closed yesterday and for those looking to put their hand up outside of the candidate assessment panel process with the West Australian Electoral Commission advising that no additional candidates have nominated. That means Ken Seymour in District 1 and Royce Taylor in District 4 have been re-elected unopposed and an election will now take place in District 2. Ballot packs containing full voting information will be mailed to members within the district on Monday next week and you need to have your votes in before the close of the poll on at 10 o'clock on Monday the 13th of February and the results will be announced straight after the counting of votes that day. The WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Now, a leading sheep meat exporter says Australia's new free trade agreement with India is a great first step, but there's still a long way to go. The FTA came into effect last week, cutting the 30% tariff on imported Aussie lamb and sheep meat to zero. Roger Fletcher is the director of export company Fletcher International, and he says entering the market will take some careful handling. They've got to find the platform and get the foundations down for the marketing of it. You know, they're not used to importing frozen meat, so that's one issue. So you've got to have the facilities, you've got to have the movements of movement around the country. India is a big country, and uh, different parts will have different sorts of product. And um, you said this uh, this free trade agreement has been, you know, many years in the making, and you've been uh, somewhat involved. Would you tell us uh, what it's taken to get to this point? Well, it's, it's taken us 10 years to get there. I mean, we've got many Indians coming to Australia and this product's coming here and it's a matter of trying to get it back there. And, uh, you know, and Australia's got to understand nearly 50% of their population is farmers, so they're looking at protecting their patch. And um, we see sheep meat as an important part for them, but it's going to take time to grow the market. And what is the demand in the market for Australian sheep meat like in India at the moment? Look, till we get going there, we can't say. I mean, you know, you can do all the consultants and everything else, but you've got to have the practical side of doing it. And uh, it'll be little steps, and uh, we won't be there just thinking you've got to send containers of meat over there and people are going to take it off the wharf. It's not going to happen that way. And so what kind of export are we talking about? Is it all frozen meat, or is there, like, live trade potential here? Oh, no, no, no. It'll be all frozen or chilled meat. Chilled meat will go probably to the high end, and we've been doing a little bit of that for the last few years, but the tariffs made it impossible. And, uh, you know, then it's training the people to use frozen meat. So those sorts of things just don't happen overnight. What segment of the Indian market would uh, would sheep meat fill? Well, you know, you've got your high end where you've got a small amount that's going to go into the high end restaurants and hotels. 
and then there's another big part for weddings and uh, festivals and those are things that we've still got to learn about the real Indian culture. We've been on there for many years because we've sold all up there and chickpeas and that sort of thing. So we do understand the market, but we still got a lot to learn too. And uh, have our sheep meat exports to India grown over the last few years, or what is the what is the status? Uh, been? No, no, no. It's been impossible to grow because you know the tariffs really. When you put it all together, it's about 35%. And 35% of the gross price when you get to a country makes it just utterly impossible. So there could not be any growth while we had tariffs like that. Are there any issues you're expecting from a trade with India? Any supply chain issues or any other difficulties down the track? Uh, many difficulties. That's, that's no different to every country we deal with. You know, you think we got it, every country we got getting it off the wharves getting it into cold storage, which is not geared for it, um, trucking. We're really responsible. My name's on the carton or on the product till the consumer takes it. So if it's not handled in between right, then we've got a problem. And, and uh, yes, I've got to take ownership of that. It was going to be a very difficult issue. And uh, But, look, that's the challenges we've done with many countries before. It's not, it's not new to us. Director of Fletcher International, Roger Fletcher, Fletcher, speaking to Hannah Joes. Uh, You're listening to the Country Hour. It's 26 past 12 and uh, I'm coming to you during the third test between Australia and South Africa at the SCG. Uh, Australia currently won for 138, um, 43rd over and unfortunately rain delays have stopped play and it doesn't look like those delays are going to be ending anytime soon because Sydney has a fairly ominous-looking radar, so stick around. Uh, I'll be with you for the next hour on the Country Hour. Heading to WA's Goldfields region now, where there's been a big announcement today about a historic gold mine at Norseman. And to explain, I'm joined by the ABC Kalgoorlie-based reporter, Jared Lucas. Good afternoon, Jared. What's happening at Norseman? Yeah, hi Jess. Uh, talking about the Central Norseman operation here, which is one of Australia's longest continuously running gold mines, produced about 6 million ounces of gold from 1935 until it closed in 2014. Now it's been restarted again under new ownership and they poured their first gold bar as recently as October. And now the what this announcement's about is that the new owners are confirming today that they're, they're in talks about consolidating their current 50-50 ownership structure out at Norseman. So quite a big announcement. Yeah, so just, just how significant is this deal and who are the new owners? So we're talking about Perth-based gold miner Pantoro and uh, their Sydney-based joint venture partner Tuller Resources. Now they've split the ownership of Norseman uh, since May 2019 and they've done pretty well so far. Uh, Pantoro spent about $179 million at Norseman. They've been exploring for new gold, built a new mill there and restart mining. And, and Tuller uh, Resources, in their own right, they've, done a, they've gone out and built a 200-person mining camp in the centre of town to service the mines. So um, today, both companies put out announcements on the ASX saying they're in detailed discussions about consolidating ownership into a single entity under Pantoro. Now, um, you ask how significant that could be. We're, we're talking a lot of money here. We, we've got, if you go back only four years when Pantoro bought its 50% stake, they paid about $61 million in cash combination of shares and deferred royalty payments. 
And then they also committed to uh, funding the first $50 million of the the project expenditure to bring it back into production. And so if you you do the math on that, we're easily talking more than $100 million to, to seal this deal for the for the remainder of the 50% that they don't own. So it um, be very interesting to see how this deal unfolds. Yeah. So the big question is how likely is it that that deal will get done, Jared? Yeah, well, both companies have said in their ASX statements today that there's no certainty certainty that a transaction is going to occur, but they're negotiating in good faith. That was the line that got my interest. Uh, And you have to remember who's doing the deals here. I mean, Pantoro's managing director, Paul Smurlack, he's a mining industry veteran, well known as a hard negotiator and hard taskmaster um, cracking the whip to try and get this mine up and running. And and then there's Tuller Resources, which is chaired by um, well-known rich lister Kevin Maloney, whose who's son's the executive director of Tuller. And they, laid, they listed their company, their family's company business on the ASX back in March 2021, and they still control 54%. So they're going to get want to get their money's worth, that's for sure. Mm, absolutely. Okay, so how is the mine at Norseman been operating since it restarted? Well, the big new ticket item they've got uh, there is a new $62 million mill. So the processing plant poured its first gold bar in October, and it's been ramping up during the commissioning phase. They've been doing... Um, Uh, weekly gold pours since October 13 when they poured that first gold bar and that was about six weeks behind schedule and in that time they've done about 7,000 ounces so they're slowly ramping up Um, not expected to make a uh, profit for the uh, current financial year or a big one but uh, um, looking towards the future they've got a seven-year mine life they're looking to uh, to tick off uh, average production over that time of about 108,000 ounces a year. So it, it, it's sort of in a, in a ramp-up phase. So it's fair to say um, uh, a lot of work, a lot of water to go under the bridge there. And um, the other significant announcement we heard from T- Pantoro today is that it's going to suspend mining at its Halls Creek gold mine in the Kimberley just to focus on Norseman. And Halls Creek, they think they'll have about six more months of mining until that's placed on care and maintenance. Um, and they've blamed rising costs and the availability of skilled labour there for the closure. So that's the other big development today. Jared, thanks so much for taking the time to talk us through those developments this afternoon on the Country Hour. Thanks, Jess. You're listening to the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. You sure are. 29 to 1 on the Country Hour. Time to head to the Bureau. Luke Huntington is today's duty forecaster. Luke, what's the latest on Tropical Cyclone Ellie and and that emergency flood situation in the Kimberley? Yeah, so um, she's just uh, just to the east of Broome at the moment, so around 130 kilometres just to the east-south-east of there. Um, but she's very, very slow-moving, so we've seen quite a lot of rainfall over that Broome and the Dampier Peninsula. Um, we've seen 200 millimetres at Broome in the last 24 hours, and a site, uh, Country Downs, just to the north of Broome there, 282 millimetres. So that's pretty much what we were expecting. Um, further falls, we could see 100 to 200 millimetres uh, per day uh, for today. 
today and tomorrow around that broom and surrounding areas. And we could also see those isolated falls up to 300. So we are expecting that sort of that bullseye area around that broom and the surrounding areas for the next couple of days. And then uh, finally, the low actually tracks uh, away to the southeast and accelerates. So um, we'll see sort of some heavier falls continue along its track uh, through Friday. And then it probably uh, goes back into the NT sometime during Saturday. So we do have um, the flooding risk um, is the main uh, thing at the moment. So um, the Fitzroy River at Fitzroy Crossing um, yeah, has, has peaked around 15 and a half metres uh, this morning. So we're thinking it's going to be as close to that level. Um, and that's um, yeah, a record for that, for that river. So it's about one and a half metres above the record from 2002. And further rises are, are expected downstream from there. So Nookumbar and Willaire, Willaire expected to rise in the coming days and Nookumbar could even reach the uh, the major flood level uh, sometime during today as well. Um, as long as we, as well with those uh, rainfall, we could see some uh, damaging winds associated with that lower as well. And we do have gale force winds forecast for the coastal areas of Broome. So we're not we're not actually expecting the uh, the low to become a cyclone now. So the most likely scenario is for it to stay over land and then move eastwards on Friday. But even though it's not developing into a cyclone, we are seeing those sort of similar um, weather impacts to, similar to a, a sort of a low-end Category 1 cyclone. So um, it's still sort of a dangerous situation, around, particularly around that broom area. So plenty more rain to come. Yes, plenty of more rain to come over the next couple of days so, and then easing on Friday. Okay. What's the situation across the rest of the north, the east and the interior today? What are we looking at over the next few days? Yeah, so we could see some um, moderate heavy falls even into the far eastern Pilbara, but not as much as we would see near Broome uh, over the next couple of days. And we could even see some falls over the north interior just with some uh, thunderstorm activity today and tomorrow before the actual low moves into the northern the northern interior vicinity on Friday. Um, so we could see some severe thunderstorms uh, coming into um, yeah, the eastern Pilbara and northern interior over the coming days. Uh, outside of what we've got on the severe weather warning. So that would be a risk f- uh, for that. And some strong uh, east-southeasterly winds continuing over that east Pilbara north interior uh, region. Okay, what's happening across the southwest land division? Yeah, it's pretty much a stagnant weather pattern this week. So we do have the high to the south and a trough developing off the west coast. So it's creating this uh, fresh and gusty easterly flow right across the southern half and some hot to very hot temperatures, um, particularly um, throughout um, western parts of the southwest land division. So we're talking high 30s to near 40 degrees today through the central west into the wheat belt. We're seeing sort of those high 30 degree temperatures Um, and that will continue into tomorrow as well. So not too much change. Um, looks like Friday is going to be the earliest indication of a change moving through. We do see that trough right on the coast and it will move inland during the day, taking the warmer air uh, as well with it through the inland parts. And by Saturday, that trough would have moved um, east into the interior region. So we'll see a new ridge developing and some cooler temperatures starting to develop over the southwest land division. Um, temperatures probably dropping back to the mid to high 20s over southern parts. Okay. And any warnings in place this afternoon? 
Yeah, there's plenty of warnings. So um, as I mentioned, we do have that severe weather warning at the moment. So um, again, it's centred around, sort of around that Broome area, but it covers Derby, Bidjadanga, Beagle Bay, Cape Levique, and all that area for some intense rainfall and damaging winds. And we also have the uh, the uh, various flood watches out. But the main one is the, uh, the the flood, the major flood warning for the Fitzroy River, and we have a fire weather warning out for coastal parts of the Central West and Swan Inland North fire districts, and we also have a heatwave warning out which covers the Gascoyne and Central West districts. Luke, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks, Jess. ABC Radio, fire ban information. Yes, and due to the risk of a fire, a total fire ban has been issued today for the following local government districts all day. The Midwest Gascoyne region, Karnama, uh, Chapman Valley, Karoo, Dandarigan, uh, Greater Geraldton, Irwin, Minganew, Moora, Morrowa, Northampton, Perenjury, Three Springs and Victoria Plains. In the outer metro region in Perth, Armadale, Chittering, Gingin, Gosnells, Kalamunda, Mundaring, Serpentine, Jarradale and Swan. Uh, total fire ban also in place in the Goldfields, Midlands region, uh, local government areas of Beverley, Bruce Rock, Cunderdon, Dalwollinew, uh, Dowran, Gamaling, Calabaran, Corda, Meriden, Mount Marshall, Muckenboodin, Narrambeen, Northam, Nungarran, Queriding, Tamman, 2J, Training, Wongan, Balladu, Westonia, Wildcatcham, Yilgarn and York. In the southwest, Collie, Dardanup, Harvey, Murray and Waruna. And during a total fire ban, you must not light fires for cooking or camping or carry out any hot work such as grinding or welding or go off-road, driving using a four-wheel drive or quad bike except for agricultural purposes. And you can find out more details about total fire bans on the Emergency WA site. That's www.emergency.wa.gov.au. And there are also a few harvest and vehicle movement bans around, including for the shires of Bridgetown, Greenbushes, Carnamar, Carew, Dandarigan, the city of Greater Geraldton, the Shire of Irwin and 2J. And for full details, including zones and the lifting of harvest bans, just contact your local government. And as you might expect, a bit of rainfall around for the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning uh, in the Kimberley. Some huge totals. Broome Airport, 206. Uh, Country Down, 282. And just for a note, uh, I'm just going for the, the totals over 100 mils because there have been such significant falls in the area. Uh, Dampier Downs Airstrip, 128. Kilto Station, 161 mils there. Uh, Udiala, 103 mils there. And in the Pilbara, a few falls around, uh, just all under five mils, but uh, the highest total was Mount Stewart with four mils and 24 mils at Hills Springs in the Gascoigne. Nothing around across the interior, goldfields, Eucla or islands, and nothing across the Southwest Land Division. On ABC Radio WA, this is the WA Country Hour. 22 minutes to one on the country hour and the Exmouth community is mourning the loss of one of its most beloved icons, Sean the Sheep. He's probably one of the last animals tourists would expect to see on the Cape Range Peninsula among the wallabies and the emus. But the lone ram was a common feature on the range next to the Exmouth Lighthouse over the past decade. Lighthouse Caravan Park caretaker Yana Powell says his death from old age on New Year's Eve marks the end of an era. They don't tend to live by themselves, but he somehow managed to come to the lighthouse 
years ago and just decided to live here by himself and there's no other sheep around so he's he's very special you can see him so many visitors come and so many people come past that just see this random sheep at the lighthouse overlooking everything so yeah that just over the years he just became quite famous and a very special sheep with a lot of meaning for a lot of people what were your first interactions with him like and what are sort of the memories of him from over the years that really stand mm. out to you? I've worked at the park, at the lighthouse for probably close to 10 years and I don't really remember whether he was here from the start of that but he certainly has been here for at least most of that time and yeah, he was he was basically he'd just be around he'd you know you'd see him one day you would might not see him for a few days then you would see him again and he'd cover some distance he would go from one end to the park right up to the lighthouse end of it then we'd see him down the beach somewhere on the west side and then back to the park again so you would just on and off see him and you know he was just there just always there and was the lighthouse a favored spot of his one of those famous photos that you can memorize or in in your head is when you look up to the lighthouse from the park and the sun sets and you can see that sheep silhouette on the lighthouse hill so yeah he was definitely you know that lighthouse hill is the significant spot for him really. There's a few dingoes around Exmouth how did he manage to keep them at bay? Well talk is that his wool kept him safe from those dingoes because Obviously, there's a lot of talk about the fact that he ha- he had not been shorn for so many years and uh, that his wool was weighing him down quite a lot. And then, again, you know, the other side of the story is that this wool would probably keep the dingoes away, which might be true, I don't know, but that is probably the the explanation for it. What have you made of the community reaction to his death? I knew that the reaction was going to be quite drastic, probably a little bit worried, but the fact that he picked such a significant date and also the fact that he allowed us to be found made it quite special. I thought that he would possibly disappear one day and never you would never see him again, but the fact was that he picked a spot to pass away and he had shown slowing down over the weeks before. I think I I knew the reaction would be sad and I also feel happy in the sense that he is such a well-liked or loved sheep around this town and that people are feeling those emotions towards him and the fact that he has made such a big difference for everyone. What would you like to see in terms of any kind of memorial for Sean? It would be nice to see something up at the lighthouse because that is probably the most significant spot and the most accessible for people. And it would be nice to be able to put something on that hill somewhere for people to memorise him and to to show their respects to him. Because it's hard to explain, but one single sheep can make such a difference or can bring so much joy to so many people. It's, 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 It's incredible. And, yeah, it would be nice to see something for him. Lighthouse Caravan Park caretaker Yana Pahal speaking with Peter DeCryf about the death of Exmouth's most famous sheep, Sean. Wow, that's one beloved sheep. And speaking of sheep, shearing. It's known for its back-breaking work. 
But what if there was a way to alert shearers when they're at risk of getting an injury? Well, Mark Robinson from the University of Melbourne has just finished his PhD, where he collected data from sensors worn by shearers to detect stresses and strains. And he's hoping it could lead to significant improvements. Certainly the catch and drag is a big effort, but really actually just spending all of that time in a really poor, stooped position bent over at the back for long periods of time is also something that's really not very good. But that that's really the whole job if you consider it. So it's all, it's all pretty hard. Would you say that there's more pressure on some of those key muscles towards the end of the day after shearers have had, you know, nine, ten hours in the shed? Definitely, certainly. So we, we look at basically looked at looked at all of the data and we're very much looking for key points in, in the data that are basically following that trend of things basically getting constantly worse over the course of the day. So we're really looking to pick up things in the data that, that are getting worse. And then, yeah, from there, we sort of yeah, identified a few key muscles where this trend is really more pronounced and then something that's shared amongst the whole population that we sort of measure as well. So where are those two key muscles on your back? I guess the, the first one is called the erector spinae muscle. It's basically the main sort of long, the two long sort of muscles that go down the middle of the back and then yeah, so that one there, basically lower down in the, in the lower back, and then and there's another one which is off to the side a bit, and it's a bit a bit deeper, which is very sort of key for for stabilisation in, in the lower back as well. So the most recent study of those shearers, where did the sensors go on the body, and what what were you trying to collect from that information? So there's two types of sensors that we use. One of them is is these muscle sensors, and so the latest stuff is with the targeted setup. So we have just yeah, one sensor each on these two muscles, just on one side of the body, as well as some other sensors that, that measure basically the, the body movement. So we're looking at the actual body motion at just on, on the rib cage and the, and the pelvis, and then these two muscle sensors as well. And then we can get, yeah, basically, um, you know, most of the information that we're getting with the really sort of complicated setup, just with a much um, smaller and, and more compact setup. And so what do the sensors do? Like, how do they work? How do they pick up that a twinge or a, a pain reactor or something in the muscle? Yeah, so it's still, it's still very much looking at basically sort of things that change sort of over the day. So we're looking at kind of sheep to sheep what happens in these sensors. But the muscle sensors will basically measure the electrical activity in the muscle and that's something that we can pick up from the surface of the skin and then these other sensors are just basically measuring just like the angle that the body part is is at so looking at just sort of like the joint angle between how far bent over you are at the, using the lumbar spine basically. And the whole idea of this is to try and, in a way, predict when shearers are going to get close to developing an injury. Have I got that right? Yeah, trying to provide some information of basically the level of risk that they're currently at. Could something like this slow them down if, if they're getting alerts to say that they're uh, at a higher risk of, de- of developing an injury? It could. We're, we're really at the moment, what we've got right now is something that we can sort of help them make that decision in terms of, you know, their work rest kind of period. So so information to help them sort of make that trade-off in terms of looking after the body versus shearing as many sheep as, as they can. Yeah, and then possibly in the future we can looking at some more sort of active solutions where if we sort of, yeah, help them a bit more, maybe we can do both, both in terms of help reduce injury and also, you know, not, not require them to slow down basically. How is the the wool industry involved in what you're doing? Oh, well, we, we've had a lot of support from Australian Wool Innovation, or uh, AWI. Yeah, so right from the beginning, we sort of, as soon as I sort of signed on, we sort of, 
got in touch with them and they were quite keen to hear about the plans and then they sort of provided some of yeah, the initial funding that we had and then they've been sort of involved the, the whole way along. Well, where to next for this project? Is there a way to, to take it forward into a, a commercial sense? Yeah, we're actually looking a bit of that right now, getting trying to get some, some funding to actually get a more properly uh, kind of engineered actual product rather than kind of the prototype that we've got. And that's something we're sort of maybe looking that we can sort of get something out there, maybe through some something like a a shearing sort of school kind of training we can get a pilot going with a bit of a a product there yeah that's I guess the next step. PhD candidate Mark Robinson from the University of Melbourne's Human Robotics Lab talking to Larissa Smith about that study into injuries suffered by shearers very interesting stuff so the data collected from sensors worn by those shearers to detect stresses and strains interesting indeed. Uh, Soon you're off to Katanning to get the details of today's sheep sale uh, the first for 2023. Only a small yarding today. Tracy Kilner will bring you the details shortly. It's 12 to 1 on the country hour and selecting the right genetics is critical for any cattle producer. But even with the best research and knowledge, it can still be a roll of the dice. But imagine if you could pull a tail hair and test it and know right away if you've got a cow that will deliver a healthy calf every year. And that's what University of Queensland Research Fellow Karen Eyre is working towards. And so far, the results are fascinating. When you've got these animals on the same diet, you might have a steer that can continue to produce. It might be gaining weight on a really low-quality diet, whereas its mate in the next pen is losing weight. And it's the same with cows. You've got cows that will reliably wean a calf every year, and then you've got their herd mates that might be calving every two years or every three years Um, and we're just really interested in trying to figure out why that happens and how we can use that to increase the productivity of the herd. So what do we know about the role of nitrogen in that variability? So what we think, and this is not confirmed, is that it's actually the nitrogen recycling system within the animal that is varying. So some animals are just better at getting the available nitrogen from the diet, absorbing it from the rumen and returning it to the rumen where it can be used for um, microbial protein production and making more muscle or going towards the fetus milk production than others. Has your work looked at any variabilities between, say, the indicus and the taurus as well? So we are just starting to sort of look at that more. We've got 10 properties across northern Queensland and the Northern Territory that we're focusing on doing intensive interventions and there is a range of cattle breeds ranging from purebred Boss Indicus, Angus Boss Indicus crosses, Droughtmaster and we're looking at the differences between those. Are you at the point in any of this work where you're getting some indication of how practice change might be able to influence some of these variables? Yes, we're working with really switched on producers who are very keen to support their cows, whether that's putting some supplement out. And the really good, great thing with working directly with producers is we get an idea whether the things that we are trying are actually practical and fit with their management systems. Because we can come up with something absolutely fabulous in a research setting and if that is impractical to implement, um, it doesn't make it into the industry. Um, We're also really interested in looking at whether we can predict nitrogen use efficiency using stable nitrogen isotopes and tail here. So we've 
proved that we can relate the isotope concentrations in the tail here to previous production levels, but now we're collecting. I've got 2,000 tail hairs <laughs> sitting on my desk from this year's heifers, and uh, we need to analyse them and see if we can predict their reproductive efficiency. We'll try and follow them through for the next couple of years and see how they go to see if we can pick those ones and really identify those animals that are going to consistently produce a calf which reduces the number of non-productive animals that um, produces a carrying and then the eventual goal is we could collect those tail hairs from heifers before they're joined for the first time and that would allow producers to select animals that are going to be more efficient to start with. So you could eventually get to the point where you have a diagnostic test where you can tell whether this is going to be the kind of animal that would need extra supplementation or maybe just doesn't fit with your breeding program and before you've made that investment of joining them, have that intervention. Absolutely, because this does carry across to your steers and stuff. We're trying to look at whether it's heritable and whether that can be used as a tool for better selection for this environment because we've got great feed efficiency selection and we've got some EBVs and things but mostly for boss tourists and mostly for better, like less harsh environments than what we're actually operating in for a lot of Australia. Karen Eyre, Research Fellow at the Queensland Alliance for Agriculture and Food Innovation, speaking to Kayleigh Buchanan. So almost a few minutes away from the news, uh, seven to one. Uh, off to Canning now, where there was a sheep sale today. The first one of the year and MLA's Tracy Kilner was there. Tracy, I believe there's only small numbers today. A small yarding to start the year with quality prime sheep gaining with demand while the plain light sheep were hard to place. Air freight and trade weight lambs remained firm while the heavy lambs eased with demand. Mutton dominated the yarding with heavy full wool merino ewes topping at $118 and weathers at $126 a head. The lightweight lambs made from $29 to $70, heavier weights under 18 kilos carcass weight sold from $70 to $110, trade weight and heavy lambs returned $100 to $140. Merino ewe hoggets sold from 65 to 75 and weather hoggets returned 59 to $71 a head. Store ewes were up selling from 40 to $79 while prime medium weight ewes made 65 to 100 and heavy ewes sold from 70 to $118 a head. Mature rams sold from 20 to $53. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that, Tracy. Now, We often celebrate sheep and cattle and the role that they've played in Australia's agricultural success. But what about camels? Well, Julia Bell is a nurse and a local councillor in the Shire of Ravensthorpe on WA's south coast. She's passionate about camels and she's spent decades transforming her property into a colourful celebration of the animal. I've lived here in this old mining house for 30 years and... I just, I guess it was basically falling down literally around me because it's about 120 years old. So I thought I had this huge collection of all my camel stuff that I'd collected all around the world and things had been given to me and donated and all that. So I thought, well, I'll turn it into a museum because it was just being stored up in my old shed. So that's when it started. You know, it's just been going on for years and it's just got bigger and bigger and bigger. My interest in camels basically started when I was very, very young. My father was part of surveying the top part of the rabbit-proof fence with a team of Afghans. 
and uh, I've always been really interested in the history of the Afghans and the Aboriginal people. It doesn't get enough exposure and also the camel itself has been a really maligned animal in our history and I think it's because people only see it as you know, out there in the desert destroying stuff and all the rest, which they don't really. In fact, if it wasn't for the camel inland Australia, we wouldn't really be where we are today with the advantages that we have and getting the wool to the coast and all that sort of stuff. In terms of your museum, is there was there a particularly pivotal trip abroad that really sparked your interest in, in camels and, and camel-related paraphernalia? Yes, I guess so, because the places that I went to all hold camels in high esteem. Like, they are their income, their food, they drink the milk. I've got some camel's milk here if you'd like to try it. And they use them, you know, they sleep with them, they live with them. And unlike us Australians, you know, we have a whole different relationship. I just concentrated, like, I, I went to India a few times, out to the Thar Desert in Rajasthan. And then I went to, I was invited to Mongolia to give that camel talk. And then uh, Morocco, I spent time in Morocco in the Sahara trekking with camels. They're just wonderful creatures too. I've done treks all around here and I used to do treks on the Hopetown Beach. But, you know, as I've got older, I really, I can't pick the saddles up anymore. How many camels have you got here and what type are they and what are their names? Well, at the moment I've got the... The only camels in Australia are dromedaries, which is a one-humped, and I've at the moment got four. I did have seven, but over the years they've died off. And I've got Sopwith, with Sopwith Camel. You might know about the famous English fighter plane, Sopwith <laughs> And I've got Peggy. They're both quite old now. And uh, Mally, who's a calf, and Lola, who's the mother. Can you just briefly go over your epic adventure across the country several decades ago. I started in 1992 and started from Spencer's Brook and walked to the Kitchener on the Nullarbor and I started out from Golden Ridge which is the beginning of the Nullarbor. It took me five months of walking. Basically it was 53 degrees in the shade. I was 39 and then when I came back, I went back to Darlington where I was living and the camels were registered and then I saw this place up for sale which was very cheap so I purchased it because I needed somewhere to keep my camels. And has the community here been very receptive and, and supportive of you? Uh, this is a lovely community, Hayden. It's a very small interconnected community and I guess when I first came here, you know, I was a lot younger, very, very strong and, you know, I was a real bushwoman. And I think, well, a lot of people said to me I was a pioneer because there wasn't people here as myself. It was difficult to start with, but I think over the years I've been able to fit in, I would say, wonderfully. And there's some wonderful country people, you know, they, they, they have been supportive. What other animals have you got here? I've got 38 chickens, one turkey which came to me. I rehabilitate a lot of wildlife, so I've got the kangaroo out there. I've got another one in the bathroom, which I'm feeding. People bring me wildlife and I care for it. I've got geese. I've got four camels, 28 peacocks. What else have I got? Oh, one very nice, big, fat pig. What the menagerie. Uh, That's Julia Bell, owner of Erima Camel Farm in Ravensthorpe, speaking to 
Hayden Smith over a glass of camel milk. Not too sure about that. Um, But yes, very passionate indeed about her camels. Well, that's almost it from me for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember that you can always head on over and find more rural news anytime on the ABC Rural website. That's www.abc.net.au slash rural. Thank you so much for tuning in today. You're off to the news, one o'clock.